All right. Well, good morning to you. Welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. Um, I'm the man on the big boom mic. I, I don't know why we're so loud right now. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Um, uh, welcome to Emmanuel Bible Church. We're thankful that you're here to worship with us. And, uh, and even as we have sung about um, the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ, how He is everything, and we desire to magnify Him, that's what brings us together, and that's what draws us even as a thematic kind of shift to the Scriptures this morning. We are in the book of Romans. We have been studying through the book of Romans, and we are in the last three chapters of this uh, um, uh, marvelous work um, from the hands of the Apostle Paul through the empowerment and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we begin here this morning in Romans chapter 14. So why don't you begin to turn there, and as you do, let me say a couple of words by way of introduction so that we could think about... um, what scripture would have for us this morning, what the Lord, through his word, would teach us this morning. Now, entering into the 14th chapter of Romans and bleeding into the first part of the 15th chapter, is this issue of gospel unity among a Christian congregation that is quite diverse. You guys recognize both of those things are part of what the gospel has given to us. We said that the book of Romans is really, if you want to divide it up into large categories, is divisible into two main sections, chapters 1 through 11, which is speaking about what the gospel means. It's the gospel explained. And then pivoting, starting in chapter 12, the rest of these chapters are about how the gospel might be applied to life. So that's where we are. We're talking about the gospel applied to life. In particular, the gospel and how it brings unity amongst a very diverse people. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is simple. Simple in the sense that it is about God who is a holy and righteous creator. He's a creator, which means that he has right to demand of all of his creation that it would live or exist in a way in which he commands it to live or exist. He is holy and righteous, meaning that he cannot allow sin to go unpunished. That's God, the big, you know, the, the main issue of the gospel. Then secondly, there's us, sinners, born into a sin nature, with not just the capacity, but no other capacity than to live in a way that eventually takes us down to more and more sin. We, are, we sin not because um, we are good people that occasionally mess up. We sin because we're sinners. That's what we are. And when we recognize that, we need to figure out then how can I be acceptable to this holy creator who recognizes and knows my every sin. And then the answer and the solution that the Lord provides is His own Son, is Jesus Christ, the God-man, who lived the perfect life, and you laid down that perfect life as a sacrifice in our place, as a substitute to pay the penalty of my sins, of your sins. If we will trust in God, if we will confess those things we have just said, and we forgive our hearts and our lives to His service. Now, notice what I did not mention in the gospel. It doesn't matter what, you, what background you come from. It doesn't matter what country you grew up in. It doesn't matter what your cultural kind of, you know, predispositions might be. 
doesn't matter if you're a Laker fan or a Clipper fan, right? If you're a, a Fresno State Bulldog fan. Too, too soon? Too soon. <laughs> right? I mean, it doesn't matter what your background, what your thoughts, what your opinions of so many things that are not contained in the words of scripture they're not addressed directly in scripture you come from all sorts of different ways of communicating all sorts of different ways of thinking about politics and society all sorts of different ways about relationships and to some degree some of those are addressed directly in scripture and you need to stop that but things that are not directly addressed in scripture how shall we understand these things when we are so different in a book entitled Great Church Fights. (laughs) It's a good title, right? Author Leslie Flynn writes this. Why disagreements exist today in our churches over certain practices? A Christian from the South may be repelled by a swimming party for both men and women, then offend his northern brother by lighting up a cigarette. At an international conclave for missionaries, a woman from the Orient could not wear sandals with a clear conscience. A Christian from Western Canada thought it worldly for a Christian acquaintance to wear a wedding ring. And a woman from Europe thought it almost immoral for a wife not to wear a ring that signaled her status. A man from Denmark was pained to even watch British Bible school students play football, while the British students shrank from his pipe smoking. If you didn't follow all of that, those are actual groups, and they identify them from particular areas regionally, but there's entire things that are packed into how we address one another. So in our congregation, in this context, in this gathering of believers, would it be weird that we have differences of opinions about what is a good idea and not a good idea to do, to experience, to enjoy, etc.? It would be quite normal. The question is, how do we apply the gospel to maintain unity in the midst of diversity? And Romans 14, 1 through 12 will begin us down that track so that we might start to think rightly about how the gospel applies for the sake of our unity. Now, I know it's, it's a lot of verses, 12 verses. And so, you know, if we need to, we're going to stay an extra hour or two. Amen? Oh, there was some amens. Okay. That, God bless you for your zealousness, but no, we're going to go. We're going to be moving quickly is, is my primary point. Chapter 14, let me read to you verses 1 through 12, then we'll pray and we'll start to unpack what the scriptures have for us this morning. Chapter 14, starting in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for god has welcomed him who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another it is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the lord is able to make him stand one person esteems one day as better than another while another esteems all days alike each one should be fully convinced in his own mind The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of gathering as a body of believers. And as we look to your scriptures now, we pray that you would open our eyes to see great things from your word. That it might encourage us to live with grace, um, to live with uh, charity, to love one another well. But that you would still, and in the same way, protect us that we would not use our liberties nor our, our sensitivities in such a way that would tear each other apart, that would put distance between a brother and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would help us to find the wisdom of loving and accepting those that God himself has loved and accepted. And so, Lord, uh, teach us to be a church that is charitable, gracious, kind, truthful, clinging very closely to the scriptures, defining things as clearly as God defines them, and seeking always to grow in holiness and in graciousness all the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're talking about the gospel as it's applied to unity in the body of Christ. This is, this is kind of how we're breaking down this passage. The first four verses is about welcoming in differing Christians. The second is about keeping the Lord at the center of our pursuit of unity. And the third is that we're all going to stand before the same judge in the same way. So those are our three movements. We begin then with welcome in the differing Christian, verses 1 through 4. Take a look at verse 1 there. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So welcome the weak into fellowship. Now let's define a couple of terms right away so that we understand what we're talking about. As for the one who is weak in faith, now what would that mean to be weak in faith? Well, we know that it doesn't mean that that, that person's not saved. Why am I saying that? Well, because being weak in faith, you might take it as weak in saving faith, but there's no such thing. There's no degree of salvation, right? Salvation is an absolute term like alive or dead. Right? If so, the illustration I always use for absolute terms is if someone doesn't come to church today, you know, um, hey, Pastor Nam um, didn't come to church today, um, you know, is everything okay? And uh, if someone says, oh, he's sick, then you might go like, okay, well, I mean, how sick is he? Like, you know, he should, he should be at church. I mean, is he like runny nose and the Rams game is on? Like, or is he like, you know, is he like really sick? Like, you know, got to be hospitalized. There's varying degrees of what it means to be sick. But if, if someone says, oh, you haven't heard, he died. You don't go like, well, how dead is he? You know, like, isn't church important? Right? It's an absolute term, alive and dead. And similar, saved or not saved are absolute terms. Scripture doesn't give us a partial salvation. So if we mean weak in faith, we certainly don't mean weak in saving faith. We mean that there's a weakness can we say sensitivity? There is, um, um, uh, there is a weakness or sensitivity about something that they perceive to be potentially sinful or to be straight out sinful. And the result of that is that their conscience is weak. 
Their, their faith is weak in the sense that their conscience is sensitive to not allow them to do something because it, it, that feels like sin, right? The, the sensitivity has placed a limitation on certain things that they can participate in because of their conscience. Now, now, immediately, let us make a distinction between those that are mentioned here, right, who are limiting what they eat <clears throat> to certain things, who are, um, who are expressing the significance of certain days, right, um, that these Christians, Christians, right, they are Christians, they are brothers, we will see that, and we read that in the text already, right, that they are weaker or more sensitive in some of these things, but... We need to make a distinction between them and others who would say, not only should I not, should I not eat, and not, not only do I feel like maybe you shouldn't eat, but if you eat it, you're not a Christian. Right? In other words, you need to abstain from certain foods in order to be a Christian. You need to be circumcised like a Jewish person in order to be a Christian. You need to observe the Sabbath and all of these festival days like the Old Testament saints were ordered to do. You have to do that in order to be a Christian. Those are Judaizers, heretical, and according to the book of Galatians, they are not part of the body of the redeemed. They, they would not be welcomed into the membership of the church because they're not believers. Now, these are believers who kind of lean a certain way in all of these various things that we are mentioning, and we have multiple applications of everything else that we could talk about today, whether it's how you vote, which political party you identify with, right? Whether, it's, uh, whether or not you drink alcohol, whether or not you smoke a cigarette or a cigar, or I don't know if anyone chews tobacco anymore, but you want to do that, right? Whether you like to dance, at your daughter's wedding, or that's, that's strictly worldly, right? Like there's so many things that Christians kind of bring to the table that are not addressed directly in Scripture that we need to find some means of figuring out how do we address one another. So the one that is weak in faith, this one, the, the first place that Paul begins with is by saying we need to welcome such an individual. And why is that significant? Because he's saying, listen, if someone comes to you, and they, they kind of feel like, man, we shouldn't be eating meat, man. You know? I kind of feel like eating meat, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of sinful. Or, hey, man, I heard some of your guys, like, they, they like, have wine with their meals occasionally. Like, I thought there was a Christian church. Like, you know, those kind, of, those kind of people that are struggling with that. How should we deal with those, those that are the strong, as Paul seems to be, like, at least initially in verse 1, uh, dealing with the strong. He's saying the one that is weak in faith, how should we deal with them? Welcome them. Now listen, welcome um, is used everywhere. You walk into target and then they'll say hey welcome you know and so the welcome just has kind of that that you know hey what's going on like you know good to see you uh, i recognize you're a human and a, and a shopper welcome to our store right like it has that kind of very kind of i don't know vanilla um it doesn't necessarily mean anything but the word here is an excellent one it means to receive somebody so much more than just simply hey you know oh you're here so you know come on in it is it is to welcome someone as if you have invited them into your home it implies an open right and a willing accepting relationship this is not just welcome to the gathering this is acceptance this is friendship 
This is fellowship, Christian fellowship. And so this is how we're supposed to treat that person with a weaker conscience. We are to, first of all, welcome them. And look at the second part. But not to quarrel over opinions. It's a good translation. I, I think we could say a little bit more about that. The idea is that you, you recognize, okay, that person, they believe that they shouldn't eat meat. Maybe because it's potentially offered to idols. Maybe because it's pork and, you know, they grew up Jewish. And so, you know, they don't think we should eat meat. And they're kind of thinking, man, maybe all of us, it's just a good idea. It's a wisdom principle. It would honor the Lord if all of us didn't eat meat. How should we, how should we deal with them? We, we accept them. We love them. We, we bring them in as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't argue with them in order to demonstrate how wrong they are. That's that, what that means, but not to quarrel over opinions. It means to argue them into agreement, to intellectually bludgeon them into submission. There'll be more said about this as he unpacks this further. But let us begin with that. How, what's the first line um, of, of interaction between us and someone that is more sensitive in their conscience. We welcome them into fellowship. We bring them in and we offer them acceptance, right? Secondly, right, look at verse 2 and 3. You don't reject whom God welcomes. So the, first, the, the next example or the example that he gives to, to kind of identify this individual a little bit more thoroughly is in verse 2. Paul writes, one person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. So he's contrasting two individuals, two church-going, Bible-believing, Christ-honoring individuals. One believes that he can eat anything. I'll be honest, that's probably me. You know, I, 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 I'm glad to eat just about anything, you know. If I, my thinking is if some human being somewhere, some culture group likes to eat this, Man, I might like to eat this too, you know, because if there's some people doing it, then, then I'm, I'm people, right? Like, I'm all in. But then there are some people who feel like, like you should only eat something else. And in this case, this is a person who, weak in their conscience, feels like they should only eat vegetables. All right, so this individual believes he can eat anything. This individual believes that he should only eat vegetables. Okay. Now, let me say a couple things. One... To eat vegetables and to avoid meat, that's not a biblical concept. See, I could, I could feel your amens right now, right? Like there's a bunch of you carnivores. They're like, oh, amen. You wanted to shout that out, right? No, that's true. Biblically speaking, right, um, whether it's in um, a division of Peter or it's in Jesus' direct words, like in Mark 17, where he says, you know, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart that defiles you. So biblically speaking, there's not an argument to say that certain things that you eat, that'll defile you. It is sin to eat certain things, right? You, you, can, you can partake of food in certain ways that might be sinful. You could be gluttonous, right? You could take the food that's on your brother's plate, you know, when he gets up for the restroom. You, you could partake in sinful ways. Nevertheless, the idea of just just eating vegetables in and of itself, that's not a biblical, there's not a biblical argument for that. Let me say a couple of things about that, right? What that tells you is that the one that is weak in conscience, um, there's probably areas for that person to grow in terms of knowledge. But let's say a couple of things that, that, that might be helpful to us. One, um, 
I want us to understand here that probably Paul is speaking similarly to what we see, what we saw in 1 Corinthians 8, and that's that there are some who will not eat this meat because it is meat that has been offered to idols in worship before it's sold, before it's sold in the marketplace. So it might be these individuals that we're talking about, but I want us to caution us. I want to caution us because that's not exactly what Paul says. Think about this for a second, right? This is the letter to the Roman Christians. And do you know where Paul was when he wrote the letter to the Roman Christians? He was staying with the Corinthians. So if he wanted to make a very direct line and say, look it, everyone is struggling with meat offered to idols. Then all he has to do is insert the phrase, offered to idols next to meat, right? And we would know exactly what he's talking about. In fact, if that's what he was trying to do, talk about something that particular, then he could have addressed it that particularly because he is literally in the church that he had written to about the problem of meat offered to idols and how to deal with individuals who won't eat meat because meat offered to idols in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 through 10. So it's similar, but not necessarily identical. Why is that important? Because I think that tells you that, that the idea of welcoming in differing Christians, that principle is broader than the why of what meat or what vegetable or what other thing that they eat. Christians are, you know, the, the, this, this Christians are to apply the concept of welcoming differing Christians and that is applicable to all Christians everywhere in all periods of time. There's a very particular manifestation of that in terms of meat offered to idols in Corinth. But to the Roman Christians, similar language, but not precise. Why? Because Paul is not saying this is exactly the same thing. He's trying to establish a principle that is applicable for all. It may not be a meat issue for you. It may be an alcohol issue for you. It may be a tobacco issue for you. It may be a kind of music you listen to issue for you. Right? It may be sports on Sunday issue. Or it may be even going out to eat on Sunday issue. There are so many things that potentially are an issue. And the point is, this is the general principle that applies to all. So let's get to the command. Let not the one who eats despise. This is verse 3. The one who abstains. Right? So let not the one who eats despise the one who, who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. We began with our willingness to welcome in to fellowship and acceptance the weak. And now Paul is addressing both parties. And he's saying the potential of sin and division is rife for both. If you're the one who eats and you're like, dude, it's just meat, man. Just eat meat. It's no big deal. I grew up eating meat. You know, I come from multiple generations of meat-eating individuals, right? And I look at the person that abstains from eating, and I despise them. I'm in sin. And on the flip side, if I'm the one that doesn't eat meat, and I look at the one that does eat meat, and I pass judgment upon him, I'm in sin. So see, he intentionally parallels both. He, he uses the terminology, the one eating meat, versus the one not eating, right? We're, we, our ESV translates that as despise, right? But it's the one not eating. And then he parallels that to the one that, the, you know, that is not eating meat and how he reacts to the one that eats. One despises and the other casts judgment. 
despising that that word uh, comes from a root word that means uh, nothing and with a, a perfective prefix added to it no, don't worry about what that means the idea is that you intensify it so that the translation of that word is something like to make absolutely nothing of it of something it is to treat someone like they're not worthy of your attention or time that's the despising of somebody all right it's it's literally hey man you're trash your opinion's trash. Your, veg- your vegetables are trash. You know, like, I, I, I don't want anything to do with that. You're dumb, right? That's despising. Well, see, unless it, it, we think that, oh, it, it's just about like, you know, hey, the, the strong have to be more sensitive to the weak. Hold on a second. The weak are not just weak generally. They, their opinion may be very strong, right? Weak only applies in terms of an explanation of the fragility of their conscience, their, their opinion and their voice, their actions might be very strong. Their temptation would be to judge, um, you know, and judge here. Um, this word judge is repeated throughout this context several times, but judge in the sense of criticize, find fault, or condemn. Question their Christian maturity. Question their love for Christ, right? They judge that individual. The, the, the sensitive of conscience have that as kind of their their temptation to judge others and so the point in in dealing out the temptation of despising someone that has a sensitive conscience or else judging someone who doesn't have the same sensitive conscience is to point out that that it's about christian harmony here not about how to deal with that other person or what to expect from that other Christian if they're a good Christian and how they should deal with you. Now the point is, how shall we respond and how shall we guard ourselves for the sake of gospel unity, even among such a diverse people? The strong in conscience have a tendency to regard the weak as inferior Christians and to look down on them. The weak have a tendency to regard the strong as licentious Christians, People that don't know better, right? That, that, that are getting closer and closer to sin and judge them, right? And condemn them. You guys, you guys understand what we're talking about, right? How this plays out? Um, these are the areas that, that divide us. But here's the kicker. Look at verse 3 again. Let not the one who eats despise. So stop doing that. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment. So stop doing that. But look at that last phrase that should be underlined in our minds, if not in our Bibles. For God has welcomed him. Do you see the point of the argument? See, Paul's whole thing is, hey, we got to figure out how to deal with these guys because their conscience is too weak. You know, try to be nice to them. They're weird. You know, what can you do? Or, or his point is not, hey, you know, I know those guys, they act like sinners and, you know, they, they just... It's like they don't, they don't even think about the holiness of God. What can we do? Just do your best and get along with them. It's not, it's not just that. He's saying, listen, the reason why we embrace one another, even if we differ on things that are not biblically defined, is because God has welcomed them. Take us all the way back to verse 1. For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Same term. God has welcomed him. If God has welcomed him, is it kind of odd that you, you can't? If God has said, that individual, I love them, and I sent my son to die for his or her sins, isn't it kind of odd to you that you can't handle that person whose sins Christ has paid for in full? That whose sins 
have been paid for because the love of God has been poured out upon them. See, the point is God welcomes him, so don't you be more stringent than God. Welcome in the different Christian. Welcome the weak into fellowship. Don't reject whom God welcomes, right? And then point C under one. Each servant stands before his master. Verse four, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And now here, I think judgment is general. I don't think it's just talking about the weak. It's talking about the weak or the strong, both of them kind of castigating the other. And he's saying, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? That individual that you are blasting off on because you're saying, man, that guy, that guy almost, you know, he almost lost his lunch because, you know, um, because I, I ordered a beer, right? You're blasting off on that. Or the, maybe the other guy is like, man, I couldn't believe it, man. We're a mixed company and stuff. I'm trying to share the gospel with my coworker. And then, you know, that guy that goes to church with us, he just busts out, he orders a beer. Just loses the whole thing, man. Right, like, like those guys are like, you know, their potential is to judge one another. And, and Paul is saying, wait a minute, who are you passing judgment on? That individual is already a servant of a master. He's a servant of another. You are not his master is implied in that. And he goes on to the second part of verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. So will there be an accounting for everything that that servant does? The answer is yes. We'll say more about that later on in the same passage. But the point here is simply that he has a master already. Your input is not necessarily required, right? He will stand or fall, meaning that he will stand for or, or he will fall from, right? The right expectation of his Lord, of his master. And then look at the last phrase, which I really like. Um, it says it is before his own master that he stands or falls. So you are not his master. So you, you don't need to, to judge him or to condemn him or to despise him. The last part says, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. That last phrase simply means this. You are not his master. And guess who is his master? Christ is his master. And because Christ is his Lord, we could say one thing, and that's that he will, that Christ, the Lord, will will make this individual stand he will be upheld he he will he will be strengthened he will be what he's supposed to be why because his master is the lord and the lord is able to make him stand the lord is capable of taking that individual to whatever maturity that the lord desires him to go the lord is his judge not you and not me Right? But when we're talking about conscience, what if, what if I don't feel like I'm doing anything wrong? What, what if people are still judging me? Right? Um, my conscience is clear. My conscience is clear. And, and sometimes we make conscience the Lord. This is what I mean. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 5. I'll repeat the reference. I'm not going to put it up on the screen, and you don't have to turn there. But 1 Corinthians 4, 3 to 5, this is what Paul says. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. Some of you guys are judging me in terms of my apostleship. I, I, I don't, he says it's a small thing that you're judging me. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am aware of, well, I'm sorry, I, for I am not aware of anything against myself. And so Paul is saying, my conscience is clear. So that settle everything? No. 
He says, but, he says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Just because my conscience is okay doesn't make it okay, right? It is the Lord who judges me. So it's the same kind of idea that we have a master and that Lord will rightly judge me. My conduct, my thoughts, my actions, my opinions, right? And just because I feel like I'm not doing anything wrong doesn't mean that I'm right. So I love that. This is the apostle Paul, right? One of these guys that we look to as... um, the ambassador of our faith, as well as an excellent example of a maturing Christian. And he's saying, listen, you could judge me if you want to, but as far as I know, um, I, my conscience is clear. There's nothing I'm aware of against myself. But that doesn't equip me. That doesn't mean I'm, I'm not guilty because the Lord judges me. I may not know, but the Lord knows. So he goes on to say, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. Even your conscience being clear is not sufficient to say this is okay. A clear conscience is good, but it's not the same thing as saying there's no, there, there is nothing better or that the Lord is fine with whatever I do because I don't feel bad about it. We could sear our consciences on top of that right? So welcome in the different Christian, all right? Welcome the weak into fellowship. Don't reject whom God welcomes, and each servant stands before his one true master, right? So secondly, keep the Lord at the center of unity. Keep the Lord at the center of unity. Verse 5, we should be convinced in order to honor the Lord. Verse 5 says this, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So he shifts to another example. Again, to demonstrate that it's not so much about meat and vegetables, but it's about anything that can be something that is of a different opinions, right? A different sensitivity and conscience, one Christian to the other. He says there's an individual, a Christian, that thinks some days are more significant, are better than other days. And I'm not sure if he's talking about someone that is a a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, who thinks that the Sabbath should still be somewhat, you know, appreciated. It could look like a Christian who thinks that the Sunday is the new Christian Sabbath, right? These would be Christians, and I don't know if you know some, I do know some, who on a Sunday will not go out to eat. Because they just feel like, no, it's the Sabbath. It's the day, it's supposed to be a day of rest. And so since it's a day of rest, like I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to make someone else cook, etc. You know, um, and they try to minimize activities. They, they don't want to hang out. You know, it's like, hey, do you guys want to go ca- watch Shang-Chi? No, I, I can't. It's, it's Sunday, you know, like I could watch it on, you know, on Monday, right? Or, or I could watch it. We should have watched it Saturday, you know, etc. There's some Christians who have a sensitivity that way. Now, again, we want to make a distinction. If you're a pure Sabbatarian, you believe that meeting on Sunday is sin, then this is far beyond just the Christian who has a sensitivity that way. You have a demand, right? In order to be righteous, you have to do X, Y, and Z. That's not necessarily this individual. This one judges that certain days are more important. Well, it may be Sabbath, but it might be as simple as Paul referring to things like Yom Kippur. That was, that was Thursday, if you didn't know. That's why a lot of you guys didn't have school, um, and uh, some of you guys didn't have to work, right? is the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament. So maybe some Jewish Christians, you know, fit under this rubric where they have Rosh Hashanah, 
Yom Kippur, certain days, certain year, parts of the year where they just feel like, no, we should do this, we should rest, we should honor more prayer to Jesus Christ, our Savior. But Christians, nevertheless. So that's his second example, right? Not just meat and vegetables, but these are important days. And then there's others who think that none of these days, they're all the same. And it doesn't necessarily mean this person doesn't care about any day, doesn't care about Sundays, doesn't care about Christmas or Easter. It just means that he thinks that isn't every day a day that we live to glorify the Lord. So I'm painting them kind of in their best light, right? person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Here's the phrase, though. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The word for fully convinced, it literally means to carry full, right? And the idea is to be to carry something or to fill it up with it is to be fully satisfied with something. But as applied to mental activity here in the case of the mind, it means to be fully convinced. Let me say a couple things about that. One, the idea seems to be that we are to work our minds to explore our conviction thoroughly. Not just to accept something because it's tradition. Not just because, oh, this, this is the way we did it, you know, at home, or this is the way that the Christians I like have done it, right? Right, like we, we need to explore that, and we need to think that through, and we need to apply our minds so that we are becoming more and more fully convinced. It suggests that we don't monothelize. I made up that word, right? Because I'm thinking about the word monolithic and thinking, is there a verb? Because you guys know what it means that something's monolithic? It means that it doesn't change. And I think too often when I talk to Christians, their conscious sensitivities, they think it's monolithic, right? No, I will, I will never drink alcohol and stuff, you know, and if alcohol touches my lips, I, I might see the devil. Like, I just, I, I can't do it, right? Like, I, I would never do it. To the degree that I have heard, you know, other pastor friends tell me that they've traveled to like Israel someplace and they're doing, they're offering communion, a, a Christian church and a, a gathering of, of Christians and pastors are taking communion and they find out it's wine. They serve for communion. Now, if you guys know, like even if it's common cup, you don't, nobody, well, I don't want to say nobody, but you're not supposed to take the common cup and just whoop, right? Like you're literally like dipping the bread and that's it, Right? And so some of these Christians refuse to take communion. At that point, like, that almost, okay, I admit, like, in that scenario, I'm the guy that's tempted to despise. Like, like, dude, this is not about you, right? This is about the Lord and what he's done on the cross. Like, you're a Christian, right? Take a communion. That's crazy, right? Okay, go back that, back, back that up a little bit. Relax, you know? demonstrate grace and 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 i need to welcome your brother i need to welcome you i still love you you know you're, you're still the lord's right well that idea of being fully convinced it implies that that nothing that you feel like is your conscience sensitivity now is monolithic we need to humbly continue to grow here's the thing right the vegetarian in this in this scenario this imaginary scenario as well as the individual that wants to keep certain days, kind of wants to do something special on Yom Kippur. Those individuals are not in sin, and we should welcome them. We should love them. They're our Christian brother, sister in Christ. They, they are ones that Christ has died for as much as he has died for us. But, biblically speaking, they are not correct. It's not to say they're being sinful necessarily, but they are not correct. Does Scripture address anything that suggests that we should be vegetarian? The answer is no. The scripture out, 
outrightly and absolutely condemn any kind of consumption of alcohol? The answer is no. The scripture does condemn drunkenness. So if you feel like you, you, know, you enjoy some wine, you enjoy a couple beers to the point that you get a little buzz on, then again, this is where this principle applies. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. You need to explore that because there's a chance that that's sinful, that what you're aiming at is sinful, not necessarily the vehicle, the thing that you get to enjoy as a liberty. Do you, do you understand that difference? I know it's a subtle shade, of, but so important, right? Yeah, I'll give you another example. I don't smoke, right? And you might say, that's not a big deal. I don't drink either, right? Let's, 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 put it all, let's put it all out there, right? I don't do a lot of stuff. There's a lot of boring stuff to me and what I am and stuff. And I don't mind that. But there was a time when I would be more sensitive to those things. I was the weaker brother. And, and then if you ordered wine at the meal, I would, in, my, in my mind, I would, I would smile and act normal. But in my mind, I would log like, okay, I got to... Keep an eye on, on Elder Danny, you know, like, a, wonder, you know, <laughs> I didn't know, right? Like, like, right? And over the course of the last, you know, as I've grown in faith and, I, and I'm looking to the scriptures, I'm realizing, you know what? Jesus probably drank wine. I can't, I can't believe it. The Lord drank wine. No, no, no. You realize, like, that's, that's not just allowable. That's, that's commonplace in the scriptures, so I need to be careful about that. Now I could, I could, I could press in on, hey, you know, Elder Danny, you had a little too much to drink. Like I think you're getting to the point, and you should really examine this in your own heart. You might be in sin. And over the course of the last few years, right, um, smoking was never a really big deal to me. Even as an unbeliever, I didn't smoke. But um, there have been some Christians that have said, like, hey, now are you a cigar guy? Because if you are, like, you know, some of us are hanging out at the cigar lounge and stuff, and I'm like, no, I'm not a cigar guy. But I think I have matured enough in a lot of those liberties to where I'm not offended. And I might say, okay, well, okay, if I go with you just to hang out, just to converse and stuff, like I don't have to smoke, right? It's like, no, no, you don't have to smoke. It's like, but am I going to come out of there smelling like smoke? Because I'm going to show up at the house and Kathy's going to go, what have you been doing? You know, like, that's interesting, right? Um, and so, so, but the guys that have been asking me in particular, and the like two or three guys have asked in different contexts and different places, have been pastors. So there's a lot of young pastors that are kind of a lot more hip than me, and they're into cigars. They don't eat, they don't smoke, you know, um, um, regularly, but they they enjoy a cigar. So I'm like, okay, you know, I can't. There's no text and verse, so it's like I think that's a freedom. And as long as you're not doing that abusively, no, are you looking down on me? Like, look at that Nam man. That guy doesn't even smoke cigars. What kind of dude is he, man? Thought he was cool. Well, number one, I, I am cool. All right. And we, that's already established, this thought, you know. But the idea is there is space for us to be different in these things. Be fully convinced. Don't monothelize. Do you like that? I think that's a good word. We should try to make that a word. Don't calcify. Don't just establish as monolithic your particular sensitivities to one thing or another. If it's, like, look in the Scriptures. If Scripture has some principles for it, then apply them. If it doesn't have any principles for it, then give freedom in that. And be okay. Embrace and love those that are different from you, regardless of which side, how sensitive or insensitive you are for that. Be convinced to honor the Lord. Well, in being convinced to honor the Lord, there's one more, verse 6, which I think is so helpful to us. I think the test of the legitimacy of any conscientious position we hold is verse 6. Verse 6 says, The one who observes the day 
he observes it to the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, he eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. The thing that you can't see readily, um, that you can see if you're looking at the original Greek, is that the construction of the phrases of the Lord, of the Lord, to God, to God, they're all the dative. They're all the same. We would, if, we're, if we're just kind of brute forcing the, the, the translation, we would translate all of them. You could replace all the of the Lord to unto the Lord. Replace all the to God with unto God. The idea being that if he is observing certain days, he's doing it because he is doing it unto the Lord. Like this is for Christ to honor God. If he's eating, he's eating it to honor Christ, to honor the Lord. This is the test of a legitimate conscious issue or a legitimate freedom issue. Is it to the glory of Jesus Christ that you do this? And you say, come on, man. Now you're talking about like, like holidays and food. I know. But what does 1 Corinthians 10, 31 tell us? That whether you're eating or drinking, as mundane as those things are, needs to be glory unto the Lord. And the test of it is, it, is it to the Lord, number one, and two, are you giving thanks in the midst of it? See, the legitimate test of every conscience and every freedom is whether or not are, are you doing that in a way that is about Christ and not about yourself, right? Are you holding to Christ? Are you caring about him? Because there's other passages in the New Testament where Paul himself is still writing, where he's not talking about Christians who have a sensitivity in their conscience. He's talking about unbelievers who will take that the next step. Colossians 2, 16-23, talks about how people are passing judgment because of food and drink regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbaths. Does that sound similar? Days observed, food eaten. And in verse 17 of that passage, he says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See, Paul's whole point is, who cares ultimately, theologically, whether or not you eat pork? Whether or not you eat, what is, what is that called when you eat like beef, beef tartare? I'm not a fan. Uh, you know, I like beef. I like it when it's at least partly cooked, right? Like raw beef, you know, like I don't know, right? But I'm not going to call it sin. I mean, if you like that, then that's okay. But whether you eat it or don't eat it, whether you celebrate this or don't celebrate that, those are inconsequential. What matters is the substance belongs to Christ. This is what the Christian is. So he says in the, in the second, I'm still in Colossians 2, verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels going on um, in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So verse 18, we're not talking about Christians here. We're talking about heretics. And he goes on to say, and not holding fast to the head, capital H, to Jesus, the chief, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together the, through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elementary spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to such regulations? Like, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. And this is a verse that I love in Colossians 2.23. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, 
but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. That's a backwards way to approach, right? Sanctification and holiness. It is about Christ. Be convinced to honor the Lord. Verse 7 through 9. I know we're running late. I'm going to have to blast through this a little bit. But, and that's unfortunate because this is the good stuff. So maybe I'll talk really fast. Our lives belong to our Lord. Verse 7. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Again, you have what is called the dative of, advan- the dative of advantage. So he's saying none of us lives to himself. What he means by that is none of us lives for the advantage of ourselves. We don't, he's talking about Christians now. Unbelievers, they still live, right, to themselves. But as believers, as brothers in Christ, as those redeemed by the blood of Christ, he is saying we live not for our own sake, but for the sake to honor Christ. And if we die, we die not for the sake of getting some advantage for ourselves. That's how we die. No, we die because we belong to Christ, because it is for his advantage. It is God, not self, that is ultimately important. Do you get that? that that's, that's his argument in verse 7. Verse 8, if we live, we live unto the Lord. Same dative that we're talking about earlier. We live to him, for him. If we die, we die to him. We die for him. This is what faith means. We said in the beginning, faith in the gospel is a belief in God that he's the righteous creator, is the confession of our own sinfulness, our incapacity to do what is right in our own power or to deserve to be in his presence. And faith is to trust in a savior who has paid our sins in full on the cross. Now listen, if you believe that God is that righteous, that God is that worthy, and that God is that loving, then he, not you, are the center of the universe. Saving faith places God and Christ at the center of the universe, not ourselves and what we want in the experience of this life. So see, that's why there's a relationship between faith, genuine saving faith, and sanctification. We don't flip those. We don't try to be more holy And then hopefully that creates faith. No, it's the opposite. If you believe what I just said about the gospel, then how hard you believe that, how firmly and absolutely you believe that, transforms your thinking so that it's not about you. And your whole framework is centered upon the glory of God through the person of Christ. So that last phrase, so then whether we, uh, last phrase of verse 8, so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So in all of these differences, that person is the Lord's and I'm the Lord's. Verse 9 says, for this end Christ died and lived again. You notice the, how he inverts the order? He died and he lived again, meaning that he's talking about his death and his resurrection. And in his death and resurrection, in his, his atoning death and his validating resurrection, he is now Lord of the dead and of the living. He's, he is Lord over all of us. He establishes lordship over all the redeemed who have themselves, in a sense, died with him and are now alive in Christ. Last point. We looked at uh, keep the Lord at the center of unity. Thirdly, we, will, uh, we all will stand before the judge. 
we all will stand before the judge. And there's just two points, and they're pretty simply laid out in verses 10 through 12. Verse 10 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Verse 10 is, is, is what you want to learn or know about verse 10 is the way that he structures both of those two, first two phrases. They're identical, but in the Greek, he puts emphasis on the you, on the, um, on the personal pronoun, right? On the second person pronoun. He, he does that by saying, you, right? Why do you do this? You, why do you do this? And he says, for one, you, why do you pass judgment? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the weaker conscience passing judgment on his brother, Right? You, then then the second guy, why do you despise your brother? Who's he talking about? The strong conscious casting um, um, just, you know, your trash on your brother, right? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. The the other thing to catch in those two phrases is brother. They're your brother, right? This is a term that he hasn't used since Romans 12, verse 1. The first verse, remember when we said that he shifts from doctrine to duty, The first verse, that is the hinge verse, that takes us from the theology of the gospel, the gospel explained, to the gospel applied to our lives. And there he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And so here he's saying, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you cast judgment on your brother? He's he's saying, this is not sense. This doesn't make sense for the people of God. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. The word for stand is to stand beside one another. We will all line up before the judgment seat of God. Not for condemnation, right? But um, to answer for all that we have done for His glory, for His purposes in this life. Verse 11, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. It's a quote from Isaiah 45. It's uh, um, a, f- a form of it is also expressed in Philippians 2, 10 and 11. But the idea is that God is the Lord and every human will bow before him. So verse 12, his conclusion is, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So don't despise. Don't judge. Welcome. Let me just uh, give you this one. Uh, r- repair, wait, Rupertus Sorry, it's an unusual name. Rupertus Maldenius is the person that's attributed with this phrase. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. I mean, that's really what Scripture is trying to teach us in chapter 14 all the way to the first part of chapter 15 to get along, to apply the gospel in unity in the midst of such a diverse and wondrously variegated group of people. All are welcome to the cross. And all are welcome to our fellowship. Why? Because they have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grace to us and ask that you would continue to help us, Lord, to live truth and to live with grace as we learn to love and accept one another. In Jesus' name, amen.